Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10, we'll look at verses 9 through 15, but we'll be concentrating this morning on verses 10 and 11. I'll begin reading in verse 9. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two. For we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts and minds, open our spirits to Your Word this morning. The message that Your Holy Spirit has for each one of us. It may not be the same for each of us. For we may find the Spirit speaking in one place or another specifically to our hearts. God, it is more important that we hear from You today than we hear a preacher. But God, guard my words. Let the teaching be in line with what You have instructed. And let us all focus on You alone in this hour. Not what has come before, and not what will come after. But let us be here in Your presence, as we worship You, who alone is worthy of all glory, and all honor, and all praise. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ the Righteous who has gifted to us His righteousness and has paid for our every sin. Amen. We come, to this, we come this week to Ezra's address to the exiles, to the returned people of God. This is the first many have heard of from this man of God, this priest who has newly arrived from Babylon. And you may recall that the rains in the middle of December when this takes place are quite heavy and the people are outside in a downpour. I'll not speculate 
on whether what we read today in verses 10 and 11 are the only words He spoke that day. But I will say that these are the words that the Holy Spirit has determined are sufficient for us to have. Because I have been guilty of making those kind of speculations. But the more I read God's Word and study the perfection, the completion of it, the more I'm in awe of the work of the Spirit. And I am certain if the Lord gives me decades more to have to love His Word while on this earth, I will discover more depths to it than I can possibly know. But I shall never discover something I should know that is not contained in this book. So for today, I invite you to wonder at the message that is related to us in these three sentences that Ezra spoke. You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Full stop. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Full stop. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Full stop. And while it's tempting... When presented with a ready-made three-point outline to make use of it, I will not do so today. Mostly because in our prior meetings, we've discussed at length the details in every one of these sentences. There is simply nothing new here that we haven't talked about in the past. And I've reminded you of these issues on several occasions after we dealt with them in depth. Now that's not to say that repetition is not useful. It is very useful. We find that many of the parables of Jesus are repeated through the Gospels, even as He used them to preach to different audiences and at different times. We even see the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi. In Philippians 3.1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. And so I don't go in a different direction today simply to avoid the repetition. And I do believe that a review of these instructions would be beneficial. I'd like to look at this morning at the message of God's faithful preacher as a whole. Because there are, I believe, applications to be found for us today in studying Ezra's sermon of repentance as it was preached 2,479 years ago. And so we'll look this morning at three aspects of Ezra's message and look specifically at the audience the appeal, and the application. And I will say the alliteration happened after. (laughs) We looked briefly at the audience that was sitting in front of Ezra last week when we saw that the men of Benjamin and Judah were the ones who were gathered in the temple court. But why just them? Ezra had much more authority than that, didn't he? 
The decree from the king of Persia was much larger than just the returned exiles. In Ezra 7.25 we read, You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God. Now, there it is. You may say, he's limited by the king to judge only those who know the law of God. Except the next phrase. We read, and you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. The commission he had from the king of Persia was not simply for the Jews. It was for everyone who was living in this province. And we know from the outset that the reason for this meeting was ultimately to dissolve these living arrangements with the idolaters of the land who had been brought into this mockery of marriages. And so if Ezra wanted to stop the marriages... It would have been much more efficient to simply declare marriages between Jews and other peoples to be null. He had that authority from the king. He could have simply passed laws that said, I forbid future marriages to be made between the Jews and the people of the land. Then he could simply dust his hands off and move on to simply enforcing the new law of the land. Because if the Jews were forbidden and the idolaters were forbidden, then there should be no issue except policing the scoff laws. But Ezra just called together the Jews, speaking to only one part of these unholy unions. But some may ask, well, how do we know the pagans from the area weren't in that meeting? If Ezra had the authority, perhaps we're simply to understand that they were there. When the Scripture talks about Benjamin and Judah, maybe they had everybody and they just pointed these people out. Well, besides that specific statement of Benjamin and Judah, the content of Ezra's message shows us it's not for idolaters at all. He says, You have broken faith with God. Meaning, they had betrayed God. That is a message for God's people. He says, you have married foreign women. Women from outside the people of God. And I would note here that he uses the same words for broken faith or betrayal And the word for married, that is shared the roof that Shekinah did, Shekiniah did, in verse 2 of this very chapter. And then he says to the people gathered, You have increased the guilt of Israel. Only those of Israel can increase the guilt of Israel. And so his message was specifically for God's people. And even in this last point, I won't go too far off the track here. But what he is saying is that everyone there was guilty. Now we know that everyone there 
had not married foreign wives. But we also know that everyone there had tolerated it. Everyone there had guilt. Whether they committed the sin or they endorsed the sin. We see much the same thing in Revelation chapter 2 verse 20. Where Jesus is speaking to the church at Thyatira. And He says, I have this against you. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. God does not call us to tolerate the sin of those who are God's people because our guilt is wrapped up in that as well. And so we return to the question, why did Ezra limit the meeting to only God's people? Why did he choose this less efficient path to, if all he wanted to do was accomplish the dissolution of these marriages? Because the primary purpose of this meeting was not simply to dissolve the false marriages. The purpose of this meeting was to preach repentance. And that is a message only for God's people. More precisely, the message of repentance will only be heeded by God's people. Ezra has no message for the heathen of the land. For those who are not God's people then or now, the message of the law is condemnation and judgment. The greatest problem of the people of the land was not that they had married into God's people. It was that they were dead in their sin. For those who will finally reject God's rule, there remains nothing but the terrible day of judgment and eternal punishment. The only escape for them then or now is to be one of God's people. And that is accomplished only by faith in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The message of repentance will only have its full effect in the hearts of God's people. The message of the gospel, which is the message of the church, is not to make bad people better. It is to bring God's people in. In Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we are told, Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of Him to every city and place where He Himself was going to come. And He was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. What were they harvesting? They were bringing in people 
who are God's people. They were going out. They were preaching repentance. They were preaching the Messiah. They were preaching what God had been promising all along was standing right here and telling them, come in. The time you have waited for has come. Unlike Ezra, who could only preach the law to only the Jews, we the church have the gospel, the good news of God that we are to proclaim to people everywhere because we are going into the harvest and God has people here who need to be brought in. That is why Paul could stand in the midst of Athens on Mars Hill and declare to all present in Acts 17, beginning in verse 30, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now I realize this seems like quite a turn, but please stay with me. Because in Ezra's day, God's people were simply a subset of those who were Jewish, either through birth or through conversion. But now the gospel is declared to all people, regardless of nationality, regardless of who their father was or who their mother was. And God's people are those who follow Jesus Christ the Lord. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 12, says, You were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God is calling His people everywhere to repent. But even as we preach repentance to any or to all, only God's people will fully heed that message. We even saw that in the results of the Mars Hill sermon. If we look down in Acts 17, verse 32 and following, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. And so Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed. God's people respond to God's call for repentance. We preach repentance. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to gather God's people in. And for those listening who are part, who are among God's people, when you have sin in your life, there will always be a call to repentance. John 16, 13 says, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. And when you hear the call to repentance, 
child of God, you will respond. The Spirit of God Himself enables you to respond. The second thing I would like us to look at today is Ezra's appeal itself. Because there are two instructions Ezra gives his hearers. Make confession to Yahweh and do His will. Before he even addresses the dissolution of these false marriages, he deals with the greater problem, restoring the fellowship with God. This is most certainly a message that only God's people can respond to. Because if God has not created someone to be His, they will not be at all convinced by this call. Both of these instructions are interesting in what they command. The first, make confession. The word for confession is translated in almost every other case in the Old Testament as thanksgiving or praise. Make thanksgiving to God. Make praise to God. The Geneva Bible translates it this way. Now therefore give praise unto the Lord God of your fathers. And that's not a bad translation. It's not, it is not accidentally the same word used in Joshua 7.19. When Joshua is calling on Achan to confess his sin of stealing items from Jericho, when God had declared everything there to be destroyed. It says, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise. That's that same word. Give praise to Him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now certainly acknowledging their sin before God is what was required. But the verb helps us understanding something altogether deeper. Confession is more than admitting you did something. Like when we see some criminals confessing with no remorse at all. Yeah, God, I did that. I'll do it again. Yeah, God, I did that. Can't say I won't do it again. That's not confession. That is not a confession that acts within grace or mercy. We would not have grace or mercy on someone who came up to us, who would hurt us desperately, and they said, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not going to say I won't do it again, but I did it. You see, confession is admitting the goodness of God and the loathsomeness of your sin. And in doing that, God is glorified in your praise of Him. One commentator put it this way, praise was given to God by the utterance of confession. The penitent who renounces his sin and who renounced his sin and threw himself upon the mercies of God rendered that true praise of trust and love from which confession springs. 
And so after the command to make confession, we find the instruction to do His will. Were the instruction not specific in the Hebrew, we might well ask ourselves what it means to do His will. We might, for example, think that this means simply to toe the line more closely with the law. To strive harder to be more perfect. But the phrase, do His will, has a much more specific way to read it. Do what pleases Him. Do what is a delight to God. That is literally what it says. We know sin does not delight God. And He has told us all the way through the Scripture what does delight Him. Among them, Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Certainly neither of these instructions would have meaning for someone who did not love God. How can someone who doesn't love God admit the surpassing righteousness of God? The surpassing rightness of His judgments. How can the one who does not love God seek to do the things that please God for that reason alone? Ezra's appeal is not based on logic. It is not based on some carefully constructed plan. It is not even based on persuasive speech. It is all about doing what pleases God. And that is the call to us today. Do what pleases God. We see the gospel itself carried in exactly the same way. 1 Corinthians 2.1, Paul tells the Corinthians, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come as someone superior in speaking ability or in wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony of God. I didn't come trying to convince you. I came simply telling you what God has said. Or in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, where he says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We see the Holy Spirit doing exactly what the Holy Spirit does. Convicting. Bringing us to repentance. Now, I'm not saying there's never a time to make a strong case or offer a defense of our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I would say that the cleverness of our arguments is no substitute for the power the Holy Spirit brings when He brings someone to repentance. All our clever arguments will be for naught. The Spirit brings the power. We can plant. Someone else may water. 
God causes the growth. And I remind myself each week as I prepare for a sermon, no amount of words will redeem a lack of prayer for the Holy Spirit's power. The third thing we'll look at today is the application that Ezra charges them with. He has talked to the audience. He has given them the appeal to repentance, confession, and to following God. And then he says, here is how you apply it. Separate yourselves from the idolaters. Separate yourselves from these idolatrous unions. Recall that there is another word for separate. That word is holy. God is calling His people then and today to be separate to Him. To be separate from the world and to be combined, to be brought near to God. Not forming some cloister to hide ourselves away from the world, but by relentlessly removing the worldliness from ourselves. By loving God more than we love the things of this world. By giving up or giving away those things which stand between you and God. When we allow ourselves to be allied with sinful things or idolatrous people, we introduce impurity into our relationship with God. And when God's people are impure, God is not glorified. The greater tragedy, though, is that when God's people are okay with being impure. Because in that case, God is mocked. Galatians 6, verses 7 through 8. Paul begins and says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap life. Eternal. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 33, begins with exactly the same words. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. That is the application to us. We should never be okay with sin in our lives. We must never stand up and defend our sin in the face of God, mocking Him. He offers us repentance. He calls on us to turn from our sin. And as God's people, we obey. What is God commanding you to separate from? What habit 
what sin, what love is, con- is eclipsing your love for God. Ezra stood before these people and he said, Put away these wives. These people who are living in your very household. These people you have built a life together with. When Jesus said, if anyone who comes to me and he doesn't hate his father or mother or brother or sister or even his own flesh, he's not worthy of me. It doesn't mean that we look at them with disgust. It means that they cannot be more important to us than God is. Because if they are, we all have a problem. Because there is a separation. And there is a need for repentance. And so Ezra applies it to the people who are here gathered. He says, repent. And in repenting, put away your friendship your love of the world. Praise God with your obedience. Be thankful in His grace. Glorify Him in your repentance. Let's pray. Our Father, how often do we hear your call to repentance? even as we stand and we look and we allow ourselves or deceive ourselves, that we can do that and simply come back and confess our sin. You have forgiven us great things. And You continue to do to forgive us great things but we should never continue to sin. We should never choose sin and presume upon that grace. How can we, who are dead to sin, continue to seek it? Our Father, we confess that so many times We have heard Your Spirit speaking to us. Telling us that the direction we were going is wrong. That the choice we were making was absolutely wrong. Sinful. Treacherous. And we pressed on. God, forgive us for that rebellion. For that betrayal. And God, teach us. Draw us close to You. Cause us to love You more than the things around us. More than even our very lives. Certainly more than our pleasures. Let us sow to the Spirit, not to the flesh. Let us bring forth things that build us through Your Holy Spirit, rather than those that increase the flesh's hold upon us. 
Our God, You call us as Your people to repentance. We, as Your people, repent. And it is only because of the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we have been brought near, that we can even do this. Amen.